Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Denver on April 9th, 2010. The recording features Gene Leiby, Beth Ann Finley, Steve Almond, Bonnie Jo Campbell, David Kirby, and Sydney Lee. Hello, and welcome to the 75th anniversary reading of the Southern Review. I'm Jean Leiby, the editor and director. Here is how the story goes. In the summer of 1935, on a sunny Sunday, the president of Louisiana State University took an afternoon drive to the home of Robert Penn Warren. Red, he said, why don't we start a lit mag? Sounds good, Red said, and off they went to the home of Cleanth Brooks and Albert Erskine, by dinner time, they all agreed that LSU could house a journal, provided that it paid a fair rate for contributions, gave writers decent company, and had concentrated editorial authority sufficient for the magazine to have its own distinctive character and quality. I love this story. It's a good one. And it's been told over and over since, the first, since it was first codified in the introduction to the best of the Southern Review published by Penn and Brooks in 1952. Is it true? Well, like all really good stories, it's true enough now. Part of the Southern Review's legacy and history is what it is. The Southern Review published from 1935 until 1942. And in 1942, the country was at war and the economy was in tatters. According to old press releases, the administration of LSU claimed it was closing down the Southern Review because of lack of interest expressed by the student body and because it was the role of universities to prepare students for real careers in the real world. Is that true? It's certainly true that they shut us down. And it was actually the Kenyon Review that filled the last of the subscriptions. So thanks for that, Kenyon and, and David. In 1965, under Lewis P. Simpson, the Southern Review began again. And since then, we've been publishing the best emerging and established literary voices, poets, fiction writers, essayists, literary and social critics. In the last few years, we've added visual artists, journalists, photojournalists, and now, with our spring issue, we've even added baseball players. Recently, we had to write a two-page document for the university proving our worth and value. And like everyone in this room, I know what an audience is, so I shied away from glamorous narratives. Instead, I counted things. Since its inception in 1935, the Southern Review has published three Nobel laureates, 27 Pulitzer Prize winners, 29 of the 42 US Poet Laureates, and more National Book Award winners and finalists than we can possibly count. Certainly, we like these numbers because it gave the university what it wanted, an easy, numerical way to understand the Southern Review's history and our position in the national and international literary landscape. What's funny, and more than just a little bit sad, is that these numbers don't have anything to do with our artistic mission, which is to put the best work we can find into the hand of readers who care. I love the Southern Review, not just because we produce four beautiful issues a year, and not just because of its magnificent history, its participation in the literary now, and our vision for the future. I love the Southern Review because it is a community of writers and readers. Maybe in part I feel this way, a little bit old school about it, because I came into this literary life a slightly strange way. My first real job after undergraduate was, if you don't count managing a tanning salon, was as a junior literary agent to the great H.N. Swanson. Motion picture packaging was my division. 
I lived in LA, the city, not the state where I've ended up. And Swanee had been the motion picture literary agent for all the great writers in the middle of the last century, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner. True, none of them did very well in Hollywood, but Swanee always said that that kind of success was only part of the point. He believed that his business wasn't just about the work the writers produced, but about the writing life that the writers lived. Old school, maybe, but I'm 45 years old, that's only, it's over half a life, I have the right and I don't care. I love the Southern Review because we believe in the active engagement with the work and the writers. Look, we've all heard it. We've read it in newspapers, blogs, tweets, and on Facebook updates. The publishing world is in peril, from the New York houses to the university presses, lit mags, and journals. The collapse of the print establishment because of the Kindle and the iPad, the ease of self-publishing, and the tendrils of the web. But the truth is that change is not peril, it is only change. What alarms me most is that I now hear the same rhetoric that we heard in 1942. Lack of interest in the written word, lack of readership. Real careers in the real world? I don't know about you, but this world looks damn real to me. Now let's celebrate the Southern Review. I'd like to introduce you to and to thank with all of my heart the staff of the Southern Review. Some of us are, with, are here in this room and some are not. Managing editor, Kara Blue Adams. Assistant editor, Jessica Faust. Business manager, Leslie Green. Designer, Barbara Burgoyne. Outgoing resident scholar, Andrew Irvin. Resident scholar, Jen McClanahan. And our graduate student assistant, Ryan Gibbs. It is an honor, joy, and privilege to work with each one of you. Now, in this great literary history, how did we pick these five great, great writers to read for us? Um, they succumbed to begging. I begged, they eventually said yes. Our one criteria is that the writers we invited have published with at least two, but in this case three, of the editorial ships of the Southern Review. And although they don't need it, I'm going to do very quick bio introductions for each of them in the order that they're going to read. And our first reader is Beth Ann Fenley, who has the best hair in poetry. Beth Ann received a 2003 NEA and a 2006 USA grant. She has written three books of poetry, Open House, Tender Hooks, and Unmentionables, as well as a book of essays, Great with Child. She has three times been included in the Best American Poetry Series and is the winner of a Pushcart Prize and a Fulbright, Fulbright in Brazil. She's an associate professor at the University of Mississippi. Now, all that's really well and great, but here's what's really important. Beth Ann Fenley was first published in the Southern Review in the summer of 2002 with a story she co-wrote with Tom Franklin called The Saint of Broken Objects. And she has graced our pages many times with wonderful work. So please welcome Beth Ann Fenley. Thanks so much. Um, in 1962, John Berryman wrote a bunch of strange poems in a new form he created that he called Dream Songs, and he sent them to the Southern Review, which published them. 40 years later, in 2002, I decided to try some myself, and I knew the first place I would send them to would be the Southern Review, and I'm so happy they appeared there. Um, they were really fun to write because the Dream Song form is really weird, and um, it had rhyme in it, and I hadn't written in rhyme in a long time, and a lot of puns, and I'm um, an alter ego, and so I tried all that stuff on myself. If you don't know about Berryman, he, um, just a couple things about his life. When he was 12, his father in Florida went outside, outside Berryman's um, apartment and um, put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his head off. And um, so Berryman grew up under the shadow of his father's suicide. 
and um, his father was an alcoholic, and then Berryman grew up to become an alcoholic and committed suicide and left his own son. And Berryman struggled with um, being an Irish Catholic, and that's something that I've struggled with too. So in these poems, I was able to look at a couple of um, questions of identity and free will and inheritance, stuff like that. Um, I ended up um, writing 15 of them, and I'm going to read you six. What spurred on the initial writing of these was um, remembering when I was a freshman in an all-girl private Catholic boarding school, receiving communion from a perverted priest who put the communion on my tongue and left his thumb there. Say you waved. <laughs> a dream song cycle. One. JB, I read your poetry and sigh. The tale of how he slipped his tongue in my young mouth alongside host, Christ, the body of. That florid, florid priest, nocent eye in my white dress, you would enjoy if you alive hadn't done at last it. Elastic. You had none, a jumping from that bridge. To your winsome Irish grin and your last wit, we'd raise a finger's worth in Mississippi. Somewhere it's five o'clock. Just eight months we overlapped, 71. Of suicide, I rarely think. I have yoga along with drink, which into his throat my father gunned. You would know, JB, that bottle rolling beneath his driver's seat. Weren't no goddamn Listerine. Wasn't I, Mr. Bones, a pretty baby? This next one refers to the fact that when he committed suicide, he jumped off from a bridge in Minneapolis. And later when they found the body, they found that he had a, a knife in his pocket. And they believed that he, if he didn't have the courage to jump, he was going to slit his wrists until he fell. Again, I meet you on that wintry bridge. Hey ho, Midwestern wind, when wilt thou blow? Consolation, some, the blade you brought, should courage lack, was found sheathed. You stepped out to meet your fate. Witnesses say you waved. One last bed, one last cool sheet to pull over your head. Boats there must have been. Did they see amazing, a boy falling from the sky? Calm did on they sail? My thoughts turn to your son, Paul. You'd apologized for this bad fall, his birth. Reading that, I'd fret I was too happy to write verse. Hey out there, anyone know Paul Berryman? I'd guess, if at all, things aren't good. My father's ice cubes I still hear 
rattling down the hall. I too have a son. There we are alike. I find the world sufferable. There we are not. Leg hugging my hip, 15 days past one, he rides me round the lawn. Bush, bird, sky, nature's commons, we glaze and glorify. To name, to feed, my son was a rodeo cowboy when feasting on my milk. He'd flap his free arm in the air. Lip smacking, no longer metaphor. Like Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction snorting coke. God damn, god damn. You'd have liked that film. You who force your readers to their knees to gather and restring the beads that from a height you dropped. Ass in the air, oh awkward, but at last, look what we made, dynamite your sentences circling our throats. Of your strict stanzas, only nuns should speak, and of your crimpled syntax, only imbeciles and armadillos, mystics, children, and those who dream of calder mobiles piloted through wind tunnels by angels on LSD. In roadside Mexico, a man macheted pineapple, sprinkled it with salt and lime and hellborn chili dust. Don't eat it, a fellow tourist warned, stepping off the bus. I ate it. So with your words, my lips sweet burn. I get ish it. I pumped my swing at six so hard my sneakers towed the sky. You know, don't you, what happened next? After the swing set's stiff legs rocked thrice, but before I hit the ground, I flew. I'm going to skip to the... Um, to the last one. Nor can of syntax inverting to force rhyme, you be accused. It's all inversion, all the time. Headstands, says my yogi, aids circulation. Henry, use a clown, both anti and pro-noun. You grand permission. Yet I leave you, lone, in the next room, a woman, paid, is playing with my son. My curd obsession of a fortnight nears its close. He laughs. I choose to hear him, and I rise. For Dylan Thomas, dying in St. Vincent's, you, Mercy rose, and for shunned pound. See, some of Henry's guts wasn't rot. It helps you wait in the dark, in the ground. Save my spot.
was wonderful. Our next reader is Steve Almond. Steve is the author of two story collections, My Life in Heavy Metal and The Evil B.B. Chow. He has a novel, Which Brings Me to You, that he wrote with Juliana Baggett, also somebody who's been in the Southern Review, and a nonfiction book, Candy Freak. His latest book, Not That You Asked, a collection of, is a collection of essays. He lives outside of Boston. More importantly, he first appeared in the pages of the Southern Review in the winter of 2001, although he says that this is not accurate. So Kara, if you could, when we get back to the office, please check. Um, 2001 with a story called God Bless America. What do you say it is? What did you say the first thing you? The idea of sirloin, Kara. Um, uh, so he's been in our pages many times. In fact, six stories have appeared in the Southern Review, and most currently, an essay in the baseball, uh, the baseball issue called "That's What Ricky Just Did." Steve. Um, I'd like to. Um, publicly disown my hairstylist before you can. Thank you. So uh, I'm delighted to uh, read with these readers and especially to read for the Southern Review, which is, uh, is going to endure because uh, they make decisions that are artistic decisions. And the small press is where the, the emerging writers are coming from who are going to tell us what we need to know. And I'm glad to be a part of that tradition. So let me read uh, just some and they also publish short shorts, God bless them. So I'm going to read some of those. This is uh, called Body Dream, and uh, it was in the Southern Review. I guess it goes out to anybody who's gone through puberty. When I was young, mother used to dance naked on her marriage bed with a sweaty bosom while father was away on trips. The nanny took me onto her lap and whispered red secrets, and the world rushed at me like pollen. Blonde girls invited me into homes at the tops of hills and darted so close I could see the fine hairs licked down above their lips. I sniffed the great truth of these young bodies and returned to myself dizzy, let down by the great humiliation of being. I lurked beneath the bleachers at school dances, my tender parts punched blue. At church, I witnessed parishioners done right by God, fired in the kiln of redemption but I always felt phony in his presence, like an inventor stuck with a failed idea. I am certain there were others who strayed as far as me, but we remained tense islands in the hallways at school, and there was nothing we could do, no authority to whom we could apply, so we hid our fingers and sniffed the seats of our crushes in empty classrooms and imagined a naked savior who smelled of fucking. We were lost, unlovable, slouching the avenues with tongues of fire. We needed more than any father could give us, the clemency of flesh, the hot suction of faith, a grown woman who would swallow us whole and let us sleep. So uh, this is a little piece that was based on spending a, a tremendous amount of time alone in my underwear, generally not well um, bathed. Uh, and being incredibly lonely for most of my apprenticeship when I was sending mostly very shitty stories to the Southern Review and mostly getting them rejected. And um, uh, so I was always very desperate for contact. I don't know if anybody's had this experience. Spend a lot of time alone. You become very needy and crazy. Help me out. Indulge me. 
And so I would go out to the Star Market just up the street, and I would always try to make time with the cashiers. Uh, just anything. Not, I didn't want their numbers. I didn't want to hit on them. I just wanted them to talk with me. And uh, they just did not want to talk with me. <laughs> it's called unfriendly cashiers. <laughs> not rude, which would imply all the tired grudges against fate, as would bitter or hard-bitten or impervious with its slender caprice. Just unfriendly, as in not interested in being your friend not interested in your clothing or chummy witticisms in what you're buying today, just there at the register with a name tag. My favorites work at down-in-the-mouth markets, the leaky emporiums with carts that are a tetanus threat and off-brands whose lettering croons sweetly off-key. And what I like second best about them is that they watch everything, a step ahead of your complaints and stupid coupons, tired of your voice before you even speak. These are men and women immune to mood, generous only in competence. You and your strawberry soda and your salsa and your low-watt public friendliness face, they don't care. Make a joke and they'll stare at you like you're naked and disappointing. I don't think that's funny. And what I like best about them is this stout refusal to prettify the situation, to obey the cursed slogans of our age with its pathological ulteriority and salesmanship, with its spirit, the color, and composition of hot dogs. And best of all, those moments when something unusual and true and funny happens, when a spoiled kid throws up from too many animal crackers or the unctuous new bag boy rams a plate glass window, or the manager slips on the ice outside on her ass, and the cashiers all in a row and against every grain of better judgment grin. <laughs> Some mean fucking cashiers. All right. Um, so uh, this is called, uh, so this book, this crazy little book, uh, is divided into sections, and this is called, this section is called An Imperfect Command of History, and the story is called The Age 91, Anna Schmoltz of the Gemersch Unit Speaks. The Gemersch Unit was the unit of the um, Soviet Army that was out in front of the lines searching for the German high command during World War II. We knew this on April 28, 1945, and the Reich Chancellery, Adolf Hitler, married Eva Braun. He kissed her hand and made her his wife. She wore a blue dress and a gray stole. Four days later, he and Braun entered a sitting room. She swallowed a cyanide tablet and kicked over a flower vase. Hitler bit into the pill and shot himself at the same instant. He had heard reports of Mussolini hung like a sausage in a public square and feared bombs of sleeping gas. He ordered his body and Braun's burned. Some days later, a story circulated about Hitler's valet, that he had fed bits of the dead to Blondie, his German shepherd. We were never able to confirm this, though we heard the dog upon our approach howling at the artillery. The rooms of the bunker were low and dark, padded like coffins. We found in one the notes written by the physician who attended Hitler. His penmanship was exquisite. By the end, he was prescribing the Fuhrer 92 different medications for cramps, insomnia, cocaine in his eye drops, amphetamines with his tea. In another room, we found Goebbels' wife. Her six children were laid out on cots as if awaiting a bedtime story, poisoned chocolate on their tongues. Um, that is, of course, true. 
Above ground in a fountain lay a man who resembled Hitler, the same pallid face and black smear of hair. One of the fellows in our unit began to scream, it's him, it's him. The commander came, walking quickly. After an inspection, he scoffed. This man wears darn socks. Just before dusk, the commander found Hitler's body and that of his new bride. They were in a shallow grave outside the bunker. They'd been partially burned. Later, the commander came to my tent. He had been drinking, and his eyes were full of tears. Schmaltz, he said, I want you to guard this with your life. He handed me a box no larger than a heart, though that exact shade. The commander said, his teeth are in this. I don't know why he gave that box to me, which contained the last remnants of the angel of death. It is always the women who handle the dead. We allow history to pass through us like a violent wave, and we hold fast to the present. I have nothing more to say. Okay. So that's the funny part of the book. <laughs> and it gets depressing. Um, so this little book is, um, that I'm reading from is called This Won't Take But a Minute, Honey. And I made it with an artist friend of mine. Uh, it's just 30 really short, short stories and then 30 essays about um, sort of the psychology and practice of writing. And uh, uh, so if you want to buy one, I only sell them at readings and they're 10 bucks. And um, that way I can feed my two small children. <laughs> Which I don't want you to feel guilty, but just so you know, they're kind of getting thin. <laughs> Which is cool. We like, you know. Um, so I'll just read one more piece. Uh, it's called How You Know You're an Adult. Suddenly, socks don't seem like a lousy gift at all. <laughs> a nice pair of socks, silk or a cotton blend, and a subtle color too, slate or ochre. Suddenly you see yourself in nice socks. You covet other men's socks. You walk around the city where you live coveting other men's socks. With their socks, your life might come together more convincingly. Figures of authority would be given pause. Women would associate you with words like sang-froid. <laughs> Been waiting about 20 years to use the word sang-froid. You're not obvious about this new, what to call it, interest. You don't linger around the dainty sock racks looking forlorn or urge your friends to go barefoot in your home. You do drop hints, though. Keep up a healthy correspondence with the surviving grandparents. Make a point of thank you notes. You do these things. Exhibit a little grace, a little love. And just like that, your feet slip inside the fabric and you rise and walk like a grown-up. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Steve. Next, we have Bani Jo Campbell. She's the author of the novel Q Road and the story collection American Salvage and Women and Other Animals. She's received the AWP Award for Short Fiction, a Pushcart Prize, and the Eudora Welty Prize, which is from the Southern Review. And it was wonderful when I called her, she yelped, it was great. Bonnie Jo was also a finalist this year for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circles Award for American Salvage. Her poetry collection, Love Letters to Sons of Bitches, 
great title, won the 2009 CBA Letterpress Chapbook Award. Uh, Bonnie teaches at the Pacific University Low-Res MFA programs. She is also another chick from Michigan. Bonnie Jo first appeared in the pages of the Southern Review in the winter of 1999 with a story called The Smallest Man in the World. Since then, um, her stories and poems have appeared in our pages seven times. Bonnie Jo Campbell. Thank you. I love the Southern Review. And I love Jean Leiby, too, the editor. I can't help it. I just had to say that. <laughs> Not just because she's from Michigan. Um, I'm going to read um, a piece of a story that appeared in Southern Review uh, called The Yard Man. And then I'm going to read a, a complete story that's very short. So it's called The Yard Man. And Sometimes it's very hard to place a 30-page story. So that was very nice that there was a home for occasionally a 30-page story. But I'm just going to read a little bit of it. The Yard Man. He was standing in mud, leaning on his round-end shovel, when he saw the big orange snake folded on the rocks beside the driveway, its body as thick as his stepson's arm. Jerry dragged himself out of the waist-deep hole where he'd been digging around the dry well and moved along the side of the building, approached the rocks, heel-toe in his mud-caked work boots, trying to move silently in the overgrown grass. The snake was orange with red and gold, but close up, its skin reflected green and blue as well, strangely the blue of his wife's blue eyes. And the shiny coils of the snake suggested his wife's coppery hair. Jerry had seen garter snakes and blue racers and rat snakes here. He had saved the dozen papery skins he'd found and tacked them to the wall inside shed number five, which had recently developed a roof leak and would have to be cleaned out and burned down. But this snake was like no animal he'd seen, as brilliant as the orange butterfly weed that had shot up like flames along the property line a few weeks ago. The snake had a smooth head the size of a Yukon gold potato. And the look on the snake's face made it seem as if he were smiling in the sunshine. When Jerry was close enough, he reached slowly toward the nearest coil to touch it. The shriek caused the snake to uncoil and set out over the rocks. And it made Jerry stand up and knock his shovel into the side of the house where it chipped a, clip, a clapboard. His wife, Natalie, stood frozen on the concrete step a few yards away, jaw loose, eyes bulging a little. Her keys jangled as they hit the ground. The snake moved across the overgrown grass toward the flower garden old Holroyd's wife had planted. It was Holroyd who told Jerry the dry well was probably nothing more than a rusted 55-gallon drum of rocks buried outside the makeshift kitchen of the old construction office building where Jerry lived. As usual, Holroyd was right. Maybe Holroyd had been the one to bury it there 20 years ago. Jerry, his wife screamed, do something. Jerry watched the snake's middle part disappear under the garden flocks, then the hollyhocks. The snake was at least as long as Jerry was tall. Kill it, she shouted, Jerry, please kill it. His stepson and stepdaughter appeared on the window looking scared, although probably more by their mother screaming than by a snake they couldn't see. Jerry picked up his shovel. As his wife of a year and a half had grown more unhappy with him, he tried to do whatever she wanted. 
Had she told him to go in and do the dishes, he would have wiped his hands on his jeans and gone inside to run soapy water, dry well or no dry well. He pursued the snake into the hollyhocks, raised the shovel high enough to slice its body clean through. He didn't know exactly what went on inside a snake's body, but he could imagine a man or a boy chopped in half, how the organs and intestines would fall out. Jerry hesitated, lost sight of the snake and some ground cover, and then saw orange and gold bunching up between flowering bushes. He lifted his shovel again. He could feel his eight-year-old stepson staring at his back. For the love of God, Jerry, his wife screamed, as though the whole ground around them were writhing with snakes. He couldn't blame her. What she felt was as natural as the snake's enjoyment of the sunshine on rocks as natural as the snake slipping away from the sound of screaming. Jerry lifted his shovel and jammed the blade deep into the soil, 18 inches from the snake, which kept sliding away, unaware it had come near death. Jerry studied the line of Indian corn colors as the snake moved over a railroad tie at the far end of the garden into tall, dense grass. Did you get it? She shouted. So isn't that good? That, most of my stories, such bad things happen, but that one, the snake didn't have to die. I'm going to read a very short story uh, that's in my collection that's, um, um, I don't know, do you guys know about this whole methamphetamine thing? You ever hear about it? <laughs> well, this story is about a guy who has a problem with a gal, his wife, who has a problem with methamphetamine. It's called The Solutions to Brian's Problem. Solution number one. Connie said she was going out to the store to buy formula and diapers. While she's gone, load up the truck with the surround sound home entertainment system and your excellent collection of power tools Put the baby girl in the car seat and drive away from this home you built with your own hands. Expect that after you leave, she will break all the windows in the living room, as well as the big mirror over the fireplace, which you've already replaced twice. The furnace will run and run. Solution number two. Wait until Connie comes back from the store. Distract her with the baby and then cut her meth with Drano, so when she shoots it up, she dies. Solution number three. Put the baby to bed in her crib and sit on the living room couch until Connie comes home. Before she has a chance to lie about where she's been, grab her hair and knock her head hard into the fireplace that you built from granite blocks that came from the old chimney of the house your great-grandfather built when your family first came here from Finland. Don't look at the wedding photos on the mantle. Don't let the blood stop you from hitting her one final time to make sure you have cracked her skull. Put her meth and her bag of syringes and blood-smeared needles in her hand so the cops find them when they arrive. Solution number four. Just go. Head south where it's warm. Contact the union about getting a job with another local. Pretend not to have a wife and baby. When put to the test, Connie might well rise to the occasion of motherhood. Resist taking any photographs along with you, 
especially the photographs of your baby at every age. Wipe your mind clear of memories, especially the memory of your wife first telling you she was pregnant and how that pregnancy and her promise to stay clean made everything seem possible. The two of you kept holding hands that night. You couldn't stop reaching for one another, even in your sleep. She lost that baby and the next one, and although you suspected the reason, you kept on trying. Solution number five, there are seven solutions. Solution number five, blow your own head off with the 12 gauge you keep behind the seat of your truck. Load the shotgun with shells, put the butt against the floor, rest your chin on the barrel and pull the trigger. Let your wife find your bloody corpse in the living room. Let her scrape your brains off the walls. Maybe that will shock her into straightening up her act. Let her figure out how to pay the mortgage and the power bill. Solution number six, call a helpline. Talk to a counselor. Explain that last week your wife stabbed you in the chest while you were sleeping. That she punches you too, giving you black eyes that you have to explain to the guys at work. Explain to the counselor you're in danger of losing your job, your house, your baby. Tell her Connie has sold your mountain bike and some of your excellent power tools already. Try to be patient when the counselor seems awkward in her responses, when she inadvertently expresses surprise at the nature of your distress, especially when you admit that Connie is only five foot one. Expect the counselor to be even less supportive when you say, hell yes, you hit her back. Then realize the counselor probably has caller ID. Hope that the counselor doesn't call social services because a baby girl needs her mama. Assure the counselor that Connie is a good mama. She's good with the baby. The baby's in no danger. Solution number seven. Make dinner for yourself and your wife with the hamburger in the fridge. Sloppy Joe's maybe, or goulash with the stewed tomatoes your mother canned. Your mother, who like the rest of your family, thinks your wife is just moody. You haven't told them the truth because it's too much to explain. And it's too much to explain that, yes, you knew she had this history when you married her, but you thought you could kick it together. You thought that love could mend all broken things. Wasn't that the whole business of love? Mix up some bottles of formula for later tonight when you will be sitting in the living room, feeding the baby, watching the door of the bathroom, behind which your wife will be searching for a place in her vein that is not hardened or collapsed. When she finally comes out, brush her hair back from her face and try to get her to eat something. Thank you. I remember when I read this story, The Yard Man, it was, um, I think in my first issue, it was published in the first issue I did of the Southern Review. It has snakes and bees and unnamed vermin. And I called Bonnie and I said, I hate them all, snakes and bees and unnamed vermin, but I love the story. Our next reader is David Kirby. David Kirby is the Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professor of English at Florida State University and the author of The House of Blue Light and The Ha Ha, both selected by Dave Smith, former editor of the Southern Review. 
for the Southern Messenger Poetry Series. He's published over 20 other books of poetry and literary criticism, most recently The Temple Gate Called Beautiful and Little Richard, The Birth of Rock and Roll. David's work first appeared in the pages of the Southern Review in the summer of 1981 with a review called Hulking and Nebulous Immensities. Since then, he has had 27 pieces appear in our pages. David Kirby. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I'm going to read you one poem. It's called uh, Talking About Movies with Jesus, which is the title poem of a book of mine that's coming out from LSU Press in 2011. And because you're all writers, I'll tell you a good story, which is that in 2009, the book, Talking About Movies with Jesus, won the 2011 Leslie Philibaum Poetry Prize from the press, which is a prize the press gives for a forthcoming uh, poetry book. And at that time, the, the, uh, they'd pretty much accepted the manuscript, but it hadn't been through that final evolution that we always, in our nervousness and horror at what we've done and what people might think, you know, inflict upon it at the last minute. So uh, I still had to, I ended up pulling six poems out and putting four new ones in and, and really making some big changes in the ones that were in there. So uh, what I'm saying to you then is that, is that I won a prize in a, in a strict technical sense for a book that had not been written yet. So I, I want to tell you this. You can go around and look at your editors and say, you know, where are my prize at? You know, and they'll say, for what? And you say, the book I haven't written yet. So gives you something to, uh, to look forward to. Uh, it, it's, it's a thrill to uh, be up here with these people with Jeannie and, and all of you. In fact, it's, it's literally a thrill. It's like being in a thriller with those eyeball-searing lights there. And I don't know whether you can hear it, but there's that, um, there's that echo that comes back. It's, it's like Hanoi Hannah, you know, trying to demoralize the troops. You know, like, hey, G.I., yeah, your wife going out with the milkman, you know. Uh, so, um, but it's your own voice, which makes it even more fun. The, uh, Barbara and I were in Paris. Uh, we had a sabbatical and decided uh, not to spend it in our little storybook town of Tallahassee, but to go to Paris. And we had an apartment that was pretty near the Luxembourg Gardens. So we had a sort of ritual where we would uh, get up in the morning and walk in the gardens and, and, uh, and talk and then come back and write all day and then go out at night and eat uh, fine food and wash down by the finest wines known to humanity and then you know that would necessitate the cycle again the next day because you'd have to get up and walk off um, those good things but uh, where we would enter the the Luxembourg Gardens there was a statue of Mary Queen of Scots and the poet Joseph Brodsky would sit there in that same park and he wrote a series of sonnets about Mary and uh, so that comes up it's called talking about movies with Jesus those of you who prefer to think about Mary, Queen of Scots, as opposed to all those other decapitated monarchs, should try it here, near this statue, which always makes me think of Jesus, seeing as how she was born Catholic, and he became one after he'd finished the Jewish phase of his career. Why Luxembourg, though? Nobody seems to know. 
Today, the country itself is the world's only grand duchy, meaning it is ruled by a grand duke. And who's Jesus today? Well, let's see. There's Ku Klux Jesus hovering in the sky over the triumphant Klansman in D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, but he was probably just having a bad day. My Jesus doesn't hate people. There's Malibu Jesus, also known as blonde and blue-eyed Jeffrey Hunter in The King of Kings, whereas a first-century Semite would have looked like a present-day Palestinian, only smaller, topping out at around 5'3 and weighing a trim 110 pounds, considering that he walked everywhere. That'd be shrimp Jesus, but no disrespect because his doctrines are king-sized. Then there's Buddy Jesus, the one Protestants like. The Protestants say Buddy Jesus walks with them and he talks with them, but my Jesus wouldn't put up with the off-key singing and the cheesy lyrics. My Jesus would be somebody who would walk right by you and you wouldn't even notice him. He'd be going to the Titian show at the Luxembourg Museum or stopping to take a snapshot of the kids sailing boats on the pond or stepping around back to the orchard to catalog the apples and pears with names like General Leclerc and Prince Napoleon and Summer Rambo and Madame Ballet. And he'd look just like anyone else, only more Palestinian-y. My Jesus would be a poet, like the, G like the Joseph Brodsky who sat in this same park and looked at this same statue of Mary Queen of Scots and wrote 20 sonnets about her, and of whom Professor Alexander Zolkowski has written, Brodsky is a versatile poet, meta-literary almost to a fault, and pointedly intertextual with his jocular references to Dante, Schiller, Pushkin, Gogol, Akhmatova, Russian proverbs and popular songs, Mozart, Manet, a 1940 Nazi movie about Mary Queen of Scots, Parisian architecture, and so on. Now, doesn't that sound like what the French call a délectable compagnon? Wouldn't it be fun to take a stroll through the garden with somebody like that on a sunny day, or even a rainy one, or best of all, one that's overcast and cool, so you could walk along with your hands behind your back and your overcoat hanging off your shoulders like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, though without the infidelity and bad dental work? I know my Jesus would be pointedly intertextual. And meta-literary, too. Though not to a fault, how can you be too meta-literary? My Jesus and I would walk all over the place, past the statues of Baudelaire and Sainte-Beuve, past the ravens, big mothers the size of bulldogs, and stop at the apiary to admire the bees. I bet you had a lot of honey in Palestine, I'd say, and Jesus would say, yeah, we ate a lot of it over there. And then look into the distance as though he were thinking about his mom and the apostles and all the suffering we underwent. We'd walk some more and stop to get a cotton candy called Barb a Papa, or Daddy's Beard in French. And Jesus would mutter, this is not my father's beard. I think Jesus would be a little mean to me, but that's okay. God knows we were plenty mean to him. When we pass a glade with a beautiful grassy area where people could have a picnic, I say, you can imagine naked people at their ease there, like the lovers in Leur Déjeuner sur l'herbe. And Jesus says, you're an animal, Dave. And I say, of course I'm an animal, Jesus, just like everybody else. We've all got the reptile and the early mammal brain, so there's the crocodile and the horse and the rest of me, and it's David, not Dave. Aren't you an animal, Jesus? The Gnostic Gospels say you kissed Mary Magdalene on the mouth and your disciples chided you for it. I am as I am, says Jesus, 
And when we get to the tennis courts, I ask him if he wants to play tennis. And he says, I don't play tennis. Though I can't tell whether he has played and doesn't like it or never learned how to play and is embarrassed. Jesus says, you don't take me seriously. And I say, I do, Jesus. I want certainty. I, I want a relationship. I want there to be another side. And when it comes my time to go there, I want you to walk me over just as we're walking through this garden at this very moment. By now, it's early afternoon. And the joggers are gone for the day, so we stop for a coffee at the little snack bar just south of the Medici Fountain. And then we get up and walk some more, and we come to the bowling green, and I suggest a game of bowls. And Jesus steps around in front of me, and he looks at me so piercingly that for a moment I think he's going to headbutt me. And then he says, you ever see that Mary Queen of Scots movie, Dave? And, and I say, no, I haven't, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, I haven't either, though I know that during World War II, Swedish-born actress Zara Leander became the highest-paid star of Nazi cinema, upsetting Joseph Goebbels, who felt that the part should have been played by a German actress. But if you're going for the racial purity, shouldn't it be a, a Scottish actress? Wouldn't that make more sense? And, and I say, it, it, it would, Jesus. It, it really would. And then I schmug and say, oh, well, German schmerman, Jesus. And Jesus smiles and says, German Ethel Merman, Dave. Did you know her real name was Zimmerman? She was a Jew like me. And I say, I don't think there's a whole lot of Jews like you, Jesus. <laughs> and the au pairs who've brought the little kids to the park for the pony rides and the puppet show are rounding them up for the trip home. And Jesus takes my hand, takes my arm in his and says, and Cary Grant was Archibald Leach. And Natalie Wood, I say. And Jesus says, hold on, that's a tough one. It's... Uh, Let's see, Not Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko. So Russian, I say, and the gendarme blows his whistle because by now it's sundown and the garden is closing. Yeah, Russian, says Jesus, like Brodsky. And the bigger kids are racing to get their boats back to the rental stand, and the old duffers who have fallen asleep on the benches wake with a start and put their newspapers and ice cream wrappers in the trash bins and start to shuffle towards the gates. Brodsky's sonnets don't seem to have all that much to do with Queen Mary, though, I say. And Jesus says, yeah, they're more about his fucked up love life. And I say, you say fuck? <laughs> and Jesus says, I say everything. And then he says, I love the movies. And I say, but the movies weren't even invented until the 19th century. And Jesus says, look, when was America invented, and he even makes the little double hook signs in case I can't hear the quotation marks in his voice, and I say, um, 1492? And he says, and what, it, it didn't exist before then? And just then the door of the Luxembourg Palace opens, and someone steps out. It is Edgar Allan Poe. And I say, is that Poe Jesus? And Jesus says, it is. And I say, but isn't he dead? And he says, nobody's dead, David. And I say, is this is this a movie, Jesus? And Jesus says, what isn't? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. And our last reader today, if you can't tell, um, it was not only was it difficult um, with all these writers to, to invite five, but also then how do you put them in order? So I did it. Um, numerically, so 
the first to appear, the, the last to appear first and backwards. So our last reader is Sydney Lee. Sydney Lee is the author of eight collections of poetry, most recently Ghost Pain. His prior collection, Pursuit of a Wound, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's an American poet, novelist, essayist, editor, and professor. His most recent book is Little, A Little Wildness, Some Notes on Rambling. And he has a ninth collection of poetry, Young of the Year, forthcoming from four-way books. Sydney's work first appeared in our pages in the autumn of 1979. And since then, he has had 20 poems and essays appear in the pages of the Southern Review. Sidley. how I went from a promising beginner to a late bloomer in such a flash, but <laughs> to uh, be the senior uh, member here seems, uh, well, it seems oddly gratifying. I didn't want to come to AWP because my oldest daughter had just had twins and I thought maybe I'd like to hang out with them, but uh, I, uh, I realized that I, I was uh, blessed by the Southern Review in a lot of ways, not least by its founder, uh, Red Warren, who was a, a wonderful mentor to me early on, uh, perhaps particularly when I founded my own literary quarterly called New England Review. And uh, at that time, I had a, a, a co-founder, whose name I won't mention, but uh, he, uh, he disappeared after the first couple of issues uh, because his real intention was to marry the managing editor. And when he found out that she didn't want to marry him, I, I didn't see him for a while. But, uh, and I married her instead. Uh, was 28 years ago, I think it's gonna stick. Uh, but we showed the first issue, my, my colleague and friend, he's still my, my good friend, uh, uh, we showed him, he, he was well connected and it was, uh, you know, it had uh, people like Warren and, and Borges and others in it and I, I showed it to, to Red Eye, what do you think? He said, why would you want to publish an anthology of stars? He said, well, you want to do one that uh, the stars of the future. And that was very good uh, advice for me, and I tried to follow it thereafter as closely as I could. And it's very gratifying to look back and see that uh, uh, in a much lesser span of time and with less distinction, that magazine, under my editorship, published some writers that I admired greatly uh, to this day. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read, all the poems I'll, I'll read today are from, uh, there are five in all, uh, are from the pages of the Southern Review, and, uh, but none of them have appeared in books yet. In fact, uh, I should say that there's one poem here that in fact has not appeared in the Southern Review, but I'm in sincere hopes that it may. I'm here to, uh, <laughs> Uh, lobby a bit for it because it's under consideration <laughs> uh, uh, by Gene, who's just done this magnificent job in perpetuating one of the really wonderful magazines that we have. And the first poem begins with the mouth-filling German word Heimatslosigkeit. Uh, and the reason, well, I don't really know why it occurred to me, but uh, that's part of the poem, Heimatslosigkeit. Why on earth would I remember this or any other word in German, which I'd never really learned? It was used by some brainy scholar in a book I read in a time when I thought I wanted to be a brainy scholar. He put a twist on the meaning. My seldom considered German dictionary called it simply 
homelessness, but for the scholar, the word meant thrownness, exemplified by Adam and Eve's condition when they got themselves chucked out of the garden. But why would I summon Adam or Eve or Eden on a certain evening, late March, Vermont, while hiking thick woods unbrainily without my snowshoes? A mile or so, then I started to break through the grime crust with every step. And today I'm left to guess why such a term, unbidden, highfalutin, would leap into mind. My endurance running low, it may have been I feared I'd never again see home. My legs like sashweight iron, zinc-colored sun slithering nightward down the blackened hills. But no, of course I'd survive, for once having a pack full of extra clothes on my back. It was really no more than that speculation, famous now. I wasn't really in physical danger, or not of dying unhoused in any case. And so it was perhaps that a sort of metaphysical thrownness, subtle as Satan, slid itself into a brain that I had tried to set as free as it wanted to be. I do that whenever I walk this landscape. I've never been much for philosophy. Abstracted thought, as Huck Finn said, is something else too many for me. So I may fit Flannery O'Connor's self-description as a person constitutionally innocent of theory, but with certain preoccupations. Whatever my own preoccupations, it's likely as not that they're much different from so great an author's, who's to say? Truth is, as we're looking here for truth, or at least I am, or was, I believe, when Heimatlosigkeit dropped in so strangely to my ken, I've never quite defined my preoccupations. A lot of nature, a lot of love, a lot of family, a little at least of this and that. But as I was lying safe in my own bed last night, I started meditating on things I call important, though I can't fit them into, even into the sort of polysyllabic satchel the German allows. Yes, I struggled yesterday to make my way, but at least I was headed home. Whereas Evie Benson, who lives, or rather lives, beside the railroad tracks, got burned out two weeks ago. I saw her standing in front of our general store a day or so after. She held what little she'd managed to save in the plastic bag that showed the logo of some chain drugstore. And with her was Dennison Carter, to whom I'd never paid a lot of mind. The merest nod, a vague hello. Evie had always seemed the very figure of loneliness to me. No husband, no children. And she never belonged to the women's club or the local church or anything else I could think of. Though it was seldom I thought of Evie either, if the truth be known. Yet I watched as Denny offered her his paper cup of coffee and handed her his powdery donut. And when she blew on the cup and dunked the donut and ate it, I thought a thought so embarrassingly bland, so far from metaphysical, it almost threw me. But I'll speak it here. Some people still know how to be kind, and a thought so simple brought me to tears. This is a poem called Ignorant. It's, uh, it's from a series of poems called Village Life. It's arrogant, ignorant, natural, philosophic, but this is the ignorant one. 
Back then, it must have been hard for Nick to work in that shop, his father-in-law's garage. He was my longtime friend. His side of the story was my side. He'd always confide in me for some unknowable reason. He'd shake my hand when I stopped in, which Yankees just don't do. So I knew about the ulcers, though Nick wouldn't see a doctor. Stoic, stubborn, country. And no, I, I didn't know. No one learned what it was that killed him until it killed him. Which made me remember that once I'd caught him clutching his gut, leaving a torque wrench to rattle and dance on a fender a moment, as if that were some kind of trick. Nothing but heartburn, he claimed, turning aside my questions, turning to what really hurt him, how his wife and three young sons obviously favored her father, while Nick was the one who worked all night and day all week to keep the family going, including the father, who lounged all day indoors on a couch, a man said, goddamn stupid, as Nick would often complain. You don't hardly even know how to ache when he's in pain. This is a, this is a poem called uh, Dubber's Cur. Uh, this, I haven't seen this dog for a while, uh, but we used to have a dog that would wander into our yard, and uh, he was kind of a nuisance. Uh, and this is a poem about him and ancillary material. Dubber's Cur. At last one day I loosed, used a trick you may have heard of. I loaded a 12-gauge shell with rock salt and shot him from distance enough I'd hurt him plenty, but do no actual harm. He gave a satisfying yelp and bolted over our ridge, blonde blur of sinew. A scary thing to look at, he must be partly pit bull, the telltale eyes and boxy countenance, but mixed with something much, much bigger. He's a brute, all maw and chest, and yet as far as I can tell, there's no mean streak in Buddy, who's not to blame. Dubber just can't seem to keep him home, or won't. Every morning, Buddy winds our own dogs up and pees on each last post and door and flower stalk. That day of the shooting, I told myself I'd had enough this time and told my family, we won't see him again. In a matter of hours, he climbed back up to us from that junk heap ramble of trailers, pickups, scrap iron tires, down where Dubber lives with his wife by common law and two young roly daughters still at home, each girl with at least one child of her own. The Lord knows how they keep body and soul together. Sometime later, and who can say how a thing can start to brew in a person's mind? While driving back from the upscale market, five towns south, hauling salmon, French bread, organic greens in our foreign car, I came to think how likely it was that Buddy had wandered in once more to lift his legs somewhere. All our house dogs, meanwhile, who in fact should daily bark their thanks to God, they are just that house dogs inside not out there mixing it up with him. Our dogs would again be slobbering on the windows, howling at Buddy. I swore by habit, then somehow felt at times your life can lift you from the factual. I was more than glad for that, no matter it came so sudden and didn't make any sense and doesn't accord with anything a man could prove or defend or even want to. In that same moment, 
I envisioned my penniless neighbor's mongrel, the dauntless, tireless buddy, trotting his usual beat up the face of that murderous ridge, leaving his wretched gang to eke out its day, the sun pouring down through a crack in the mountains, buttery in the vision on the dog's thick fur, heraldic. And he seemed an admirable creature, if only for his patience. And more, the house and hovels, the twisted wrecks of chassis and antique farm machine all seemed to assume, assume a kindred glow and seemed part of something much, much bigger. The wet-nosed kids, the scrabbling barn cats, pullets, poults, the scrawny pony and weedy garden plot. Forgive me, but these all testified to a light in each of us that don't embarrass me. Don't ask a thing about it. Instead, let me ask you, have you not, in your wandering, a world that you've done your own small part, like me, to soil, not sometimes felt a purpose? Some might shoot you for it, granted. It remains a purpose, though, and though I almost see you lift the gun, you may have sensed a near-exalting rightness in doggedly keeping at it, just as Dubber's cur keeps at his climb, shows up. This is, this is a grim, uh, nasty poem called the 1950s, time of my puberty. Um, it, it's not very nice, but I'm, I'm actually all kinds of fun in real life. Lots of people will tell you that. Uh, 1950s. The boys went back and forth between scamming and snubbing the girl who showed up late afternoon to watch each practice and game, her elbows propped on the boards as their bodies flew by. Cinder block and eye beam echoed with grunts and the claps of sticks on pucks. Before they showered, unlacing skates on the bench, they threw fingers to see who'd be the one to go find her. They bragged about what they'd make her do or had. Some of them must have known her actual name, so there's no excuse for what those young punks called her. Among themselves, the girl was always Rink Rat. Where was the school where Rink Rat took her classes? Nobody cared. Nobody wondered how her family, if she had a family in fact, would set her free to hang around with boys at play and after. Behind the building, a path of mud and cinders snaked past propane tanks and garbage cans up a squat little hill that was more or less out of sight. Not exactly a bower, but then atmosphere wasn't the issue. Much later, driving past some bleak-looking scene that sketchily re resembles that meeting place, one of the boys, who now has daughters and granddaughters, shivers as he thinks of a blurry figure with bottle-thick glasses lopsided on her face, her savagely birthmarked face. The mark is what lingers more than anything. It started under an ear, as I saw when she wore her limp hair up or in braids. She tried out other styles too, but none of them cared. Her body was all that mattered, as one of them sneered, the chassis's not half bad. When she wasn't a rodent, she could be a machine. What sort of desperate longing, if that's what you'd call it, made the girl so easy a mark? 
What on earth could make her come and come? Oh, they had fun with that word. Their double meanings as lame as each of them, no doubt, was mistaken. And the rink rat machine would thrash and sigh and moan, a pretense the graceless boys didn't bother with. Her birth splotch took the nastiest possible path, from that ear to the edge of her scalp and straight back down, turning her oversized nose with its acne and blackheads to a blob of berry and paste and melting chocolate. Her chin the same. So the boys were playing two games, one with the nets and goalies, the other with a rink rat. After their sweat cooled down, they talked about hockey. They praised their teamwork, deception, brotherhood, speed. In short, they swapped the mindless swaggerer's claim that, claims that men have always shared. I'm saying they, you'll understand, as I try to skate over shame. It seems to have taken me 50 years to name. And the last one is uh, much more cheerful. And uh, unlike me, it's a bit yogic. I'm scarcely yogic type, but uh, this is called Mahayana in Vermont. My objectives this morning were vague. As always, I'd hike these hills, the way to keep going against the odds, age deals. A way to keep body and soul together, and not so much thinking as letting things steal into mind. But I started counting from the very first step I took. I wore rank old boots, ill-laced, and patchwork pants. Around my neck hung the frayed lanyard of a whistle I used to summon our trio of dogs, who capered and yelped their pleasure at one of our walks, and more miraculous still, at having me for a master. It's true, in a sense, that I always count as I wander, though it's usually the beats of a tune. Thelonious Monk's brilliant corners, a favorite, that mark my time. These counts felt odder, better. We scattered a brood of grouse at step 91. The deer flies strafed us. At 500, a late trillium glowed by a ledge like a lotus. Right along, the rain kept pounding. I was mindful of all these things, but I never stopped counting. Life was good and more. It was worthy of better response. At a thousand, I thought, enough, and counted on. Nothing was coming to mind. Nothing is coming again from my hike half the day ago with three dogs through rain but a mystic sense of well-being in quietly chanted numbers. Whatever this trance, I treasured it as a wonder, not to be wrenched into meaning, as in every second counts, as in you should count your blessings, though of these there seems no doubt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. 
Thank you, Beth Ann. Thank you, Sid. Thank you, Bonnie Joe. Thank you, Steve. More importantly, thank all of you for being part of our audience, for being readers, for being writers, subscribers, contributors, and submitters. We really appreciate it. Pretend with we for one minute that it's 10 years from now, celebrating the 85th anniversary of the Southern Review, and maybe it'll be the second female editor of the Southern Review standing before you. And what she'll say is, I'd like to introduce you to Fatima Rashid, a writer whose first appeared in the pages of the Southern Review in 2008. Or Elizabeth Genovese, a writer whose work first appeared in 2009. Or Paul Manieri, whose first appeared in the pages in 2010. Because we love the writers that we publish with Great Histories, but we also love the writers who we get to bring to you for the first time. So those are three names you might want to watch out for. And again, on behalf of everybody at the Southern Review, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.